There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Close to 5 million adults living with parents amid the housing crisis. A row over nighttime closures of London's finest skyline viewing point, Primrose Hill. Road safety campaigners call out politicians for normalizing dangerous driving and the world's largest architecture festival opens in Venice. My name is Fran Williams. I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau and Design District is Iwa Effiom. Iwa is a London-based architect, writer, and producer. Welcome to the show, Iwa. Thanks, Fran. It's great to be here. New 2021 census data has unveiled a staggering surge in the number of adults living with their parents, with the total figure now reaching an all-time high. The data was covered by The Guardian in an opinion piece delving into the profound societal implications of this trend which has left young people with a palpable sense of abandonment by political leaders. Around 4.9 million adults in England and Wales are living with their parents, an increase of nearly 15% compared to the previous 2011 census. And while this latest data was collected during the global pandemic, the Office for National Statistics has insisted that this trend appears to be a continuation of an ongoing pattern rather than merely a consequence of the recent health crisis. The statistics reveal an interesting gender dynamic, with men outnumbering women in this living arrangement by a ratio of three to two. Meanwhile, more than half of individuals aged 20 to 24, amounting to 51.2%, now find themselves residing within their family home, a significant rise from the 44.5% recorded a decade earlier. The figure is nearly 12% of 30 to 34-year-olds, and nearly half of single-parent families now have adult children living at home. Regional variations are also apparent, with a quarter of households in London having at least one adult child living at home, the average age of which is 26 in five London boroughs. Meanwhile, in Dorset, for instance, the percentage of the population identified as adult children living with their parents stands at 20%, according to the Office for National Statistics. John Harris writes in his Guardian piece, quote, Woven into the same picture is a higher education system that spits out 20-somethings already burdened with an astronomical debt. The result is a kind of a compulsory extended adolescence, which is now threatening to envelop even those starting their 40s and is surely a big part of the huge downturn in younger people's mental health. So Iwa, what's this all about? Why are so many young adults living at home and why is it such a big deal? Well, I, for one, can't think of anything worse than giving up that emancipation I got at 18 years old that I paid for with beans on toast by 
going and living with my parents again. But this is a systemic problem. If you think about the time of the last census, 2011, so that's a year after David Cameron comes into power, what has changed? Basically, the university fees have skyrocketed and there's a lack of rises in wage with respect to house prices. The affordability ratio was 3.3 in 1993 and it rose to 6.5 in 2007. I think last year, the um, ONS says it was 8.3 in England and over 12, an average of over 12 in London. So, I mean, there's no question why this adolescence has stretched from something that goes, that stops at the end of your teens to something that stretches well into your 30s. It's also because houses are now kind of seen as an investment and no longer just homes for people to live in. So there's been this continual change, which means that the people that can't afford to buy houses have to go home, you know, in order to try and save up money for a deposit, in order to alleviate the problems that are coming in with the cost of living crisis. And this lackluster response to this kind of unbridled capitalism that we've seen from government in the last 13 years is means that people live at home. I suppose rents are so high as well that it's like it's basically like pouring money down the drain to private landlords. So if your parents live in London, it's kind of it's kind of a no brainer for a lot of people um, to just not spend that money. Did you hear about that incident in Chadwell Heath where 50 people turned up for an hour slot for for a two bed place that was going for a thousand two hundred pounds? It's just crazy. That's barking in Dagenham. I don't even know what zone that's in. <laughs> it's insane. Also, another thing, mortgage providers have now started to offer 100% mortgages, which is, I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous. It means that people are being expected to be paying their mortgages off even after they retire. People that die still paying their mortgages New government data has elsewhere revealed that the number of households living in temporary accommodation in England is now at its highest point on record, with more than 100,000 households, including 127,000 children, now in temporary accommodation such as hotels, B&Bs and emergency housing. What does this say about the present state of our housing system? I think it's no secret that this system is essentially broken. And this is why the polls are projecting that there is a desire for policies to change. This is the first time that the barrier has breached the 100,000 mark in almost 20 years. I think the last time was 2005. And this particular situation is all down to like a shortage of affordable housing. Rents kind of going up and the number of households living in short-term homes has doubled since 2012. So yeah, I mean, the system is broken. Just as the long-awaited renters reform bill has finally been brought to Parliament, data shows that the number of households evicted by bailiffs due to a Section 21 eviction, otherwise known as a no-fault eviction, has ris risen by 116% in a year. Iwa, for young people, say those below the age of 40, are there any good options when it comes to housing? And how is this affecting a generation of people? I think this is what we've been talking about over this segment, really. There are very few options, and I think without legislative reach, I don't think that this situation will change. This was Gove's opportunity to alter the power dynamic, and he missed. 
reportedly because Tory members wouldn't agree with him. And I think without that legislative reach, I, 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 I don't know what the options are because it, it can't go on like this. Last week, The Times ran an interview with Conservative MP Theresa Villiers, perhaps most famous for her role in pushing the government to scrap its housing targets. In the interview piece, she admitted to not knowing anyone affected by the housing crisis and failed to name a single example of someone's housing story that touched her. So, how out of touch are policymakers with the realities experienced by young people, especially in London? I mean, this is a crazy story. <laughs> it is crazy. I mean, have you have you heard some of the names that she's been like called? She's been called. She's been referred to as, as the patron saint of nimbyism. <laughs> How do you how do you even get known for for something like that? Uh, she's been called someone that's spitting in the face of a whole generation, or pandering to a whole generation's worst instincts. I mean, I think I think also she's an MP, right? So her saying she doesn't know anybody affected by the housing crisis is the biggest part of nonsense I've heard in quite a long time. She's not in touch with young people, but she doesn't have to be, right? Because the average age of a voter um, of the Conservatives is over 50s, who are predominantly middle class and basically don't want their house that they bought in 1973 for £5 to go down from £1.25 to £1.2 That's the case, right? They're pandering to their, to their base. That's it. And kind of intergenerational inequality works to their electoral kind of advantage. Older people are more likely to vote, more likely to vote conservative, and are concentrated in more suburban kind of constituencies. I think it says it just shows that it's really disappointing that a lot of MPs don't actually engage with their constituents. And um, young people are quite a large proportion of those in London. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just really disappointing. A row over antisocial behaviour in Primrose Hill has led authorities to close the park on weekend nights, according to reports by the BBC and The Guardian. In response to local concerns, Royal Parks will be installing permanent metal gates to facilitate the closure of the most famous North London park between 10pm and 6am on Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays. This comes after more than half of respondents to the public consultation voted in favour of shutting the park for at least three nights per week. We covered this on The Lundown in May 2021 with Ollie Wainwright when temporary barriers were erected around the park after some local residents claimed a, quote, rowdy, violent, drug-taking and drug-dealing crowd had started using the park as a result of lockdown measures. The issue has caused a division within the neighbourhood, with one faction of the community passionately advocating for the installation of permanent gates. This group went to great lengths to voice their support, organising a petition and creating a video that was circulated among politicians. On the other hand, another group vehemently opposed the gates and has accused their counterparts of engaging in clandestine lobbying efforts to alter access to public green space. Former Channel 4 broadcaster and resident Jon Snow said, quote, I honestly think that they have really built themselves a problem and they are trying to create one that doesn't exist. I walk my dog up there sometime before 10pm and I go into the park. I think I would see if anything was going on, if it is the scale that has been talked about and I haven't seen this problem. So, what's this all about? And why has the closure of this beautiful park boasting one of London's finest nighttime panoramic views caused such massive ripples? 
It's because it's a rift between people that understand the importance of public spaces when you don't have a garden at home and people that don't. So London is a great place because it's not segregated in terms of kind of wealth. So there are all these different people from different socioeconomic backgrounds that kind of all live intertwined into each other. But there's often kind of a divide between them, you know, and the people that have bought or rent or are renting properties in these place because of the large kind of green amenity that they have are beside people that don't have their own private access to a garden. And essentially what they're trying to do is go, you're not allowed to have this big public space that has served this city for like countless time. And it's kind of really surprising to me because the pandemic was one of those instances where we understood that green space is really important. And and three years later or two years later, there's this kind of amnesia and and this creation of like narrative, right? Of like antisocial behavior and all these parties that go on through the night. First of all, like I'm I'm not sure that these things are happening. <laughs> But also it's it's when you have other public figures that are saying that they don't see these things happen, even if they are in the park at these times, you then ask yourself the question, what's the motiva- motivation behind saying this, right? And yeah, I think, I think that's what it is. I think it's a disconnect between the two populations. And it's really sad to hear that it's going down the way of the people that want to restrict the use of public space. It sounds because they, they're probably from a more affluent background. They have the resources, for example, to create this video that was passed around politicians. And they probably had the connections too, which um, a large part of the population wouldn't. So when we reported on this two years ago, we quoted the Dean of the School of Architecture at the Royal College of Art, Adrian Lahoud, who pointed out that, quote, during lockdown, Regent's Park and Primrose Hill became highly multi-ethnic spaces for socialisation with large groups of Ethiopian and Somali families picnicking. Iwa, do you think there is a racial element to this public space closure? You can always count on Adrian to hit the nail on the head. I mean, this sounds like this is exactly what it is, because the descriptions of the antisocial behaviour, in my mind, what's going through the back of my head is, what do they just mean, black and brown people? Because that, that's, that's what it sounds to me like it's a description of, right? And especially when you talk about loud music and drug dealing, and there are people kind of sitting on benches and having a good time, it's that whole kind of thing of... They're having a good time, but I don't exactly understand how they're doing it or why they're doing it in this place. Why can't they go home and spend time in their gardens? And that's it. That's back to this um, disconnect. I've got a similar thing in um, the borough in which I live. There's this church behind Hackney Central called St. John at Hackney. And people kind of, so many friends, okay, walk through and, and... they're fine. And there's a few friends that kind of say, oh, I don't, I, I don't really walk through this park because I don't feel safe. And there's there's been instances where I've had to kind of challenge this and go like, the people sitting on the bench that don't speak to you hardly look up at you. Why are you scared of these people? But yeah, I mean, that's the way of the world. This week, Home Secretary Suella Braverman has faced scrutiny after the Sunday Times reported that she asked officials to organise a one-to-one speed awareness course when she was caught speeding last summer. 
Much of the coverage to date has focused on Braverman's alleged attempts to persuade civil servants to arrange a private course to avoid the embarrassment of being recognised, a possible breach of the ministerial code. However, The Guardian and Road.cc focused on the speeding incident itself. She has become the latest in a string of high-profile politicians in violation of road traffic laws, which includes Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who was fined for failing to wear a seatbelt back in January. Over the past 12 months, two of Braverman's ministers in the Home Office received six-month driving bans. Robert Jenrick, Immigration Minister, was caught driving 30 miles per hour over the speed limit, and the Security Minister, Tom Tugendhat, was caught using his phone while driving. The Executive President of the Towards Zero Foundation, which campaigns to reduce road deaths across the globe, David Ward, has accused politicians of, quote, normalising dangerous breaches in road safety. Simon Monk from the London Cycling Campaign told cycle website Road CC, quote, Surveys tell us that a majority of UK drivers admit to speeding routinely. We have an enforcement and justice system that tolerates this and more, frequently lets off dangerous, even killer drivers for tearing apart lives, families and friendship circles with little or no consequences. And all while the evidence shows speeding is one of the primary causes of serious and fatal collisions. So, Iwa, is it really such a big deal for a high-profile person, such as a politician responsible for making laws to break the speed limit, or has our society normalised speeding? Um, I think our society hasn't normalised speeding, and which is the reason why this has been in the news for quite a few days now. And I think it's more of a situation where policymakers and the people that kind of, the ruling class, so to speak, break rules, you know, because they think that maybe the rules don't apply to them. The reason why Suella Braverman's situation is so interesting is it's because obviously she has critics on both sides of the bench and the whole kind of thing of her breaking the rules and then her trying to get into a situation where she can do the speed awareness course privately is kind of a symptom of this idea and this understanding that maybe some of the rules and some of the restrictions that we all live by don't apply to her. I think as a policymaker, she should be held to a higher level of scrutiny than the rest of us. And this speed awareness course, which shouldn't be a negotiation, a part of the penalty, as was said in um, the article, is that she should do it with other people so that she too can go through that process of kind of making those silly excuses, but also understanding and taking accountability for those excuses in a public sphere. Um, one thing I do want to say, which will probably get cut out, is why are all these politicians, like, auditioning for extras on, like, Fast and Furious 24 or whatever it is? <laughs> What's happening? What's going on? If you were tuned into last week's show, you would have had the chance to hear Merlin's conversation with Jaden Ali, one of the curators of the British Pavilion, just before the public opening of the Venice Architecture Biennale last Saturday. Architecture studio DA, which is led by Alessandro Petty and Sandy Halal, won the Golden Lion for the best participant in the Laboratory of the Future exhibition. Their installation featured a deconstructed building facade aimed to explore, quote, the subversion of fascist colonial architecture and its modernist legacy. The jury praised the duo for their, quote, long-standing commitment to deep political engagement with the architectural and learning practices of decolonialization in Palestine and Europe. 
Meanwhile, the Brazilian pavilion titled Terra, curated by Gabriela de Matos and Paulo Tavares, won the Golden Lion for Best National Participation, and the British pavilion also received a special mention from judges. The Venice Architecture Biennale has been the talk of the industry, with prominent publications extensively covering the prestigious festival. Architecture critics and Twitter pundits alike have taken to the internet to share their thoughts on this year's architectural offerings. Outside the Biennale, compounds on the other side of Venice, models of the line and other elements connected to the controversial Neom megaproject in Saudi Arabia were showcased, drawing criticism from some over connections to the country's human rights abuses. The AJ reported that UK architect Asif Khan and 2023 Serpentine Pavilion architect Lina Gottme have defended their roles in two new museums in Saudi Arabia, which was announced just before the Biennale opening. The Biennale runs until 26th of November this year. So Iwa, I think I saw you in Venice this year. <laughs> what did you make of the festival and any highlights or big misses? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I wasn't there. I definitely wasn't having the amount of fun that can be seen from how my voice sounds at the moment. I don't know, I think it was great. I thought that with the theme, there was a, an opportunity for architectural practitioners to take architecture away from just being a thing that architects kind of are obsessed about and kind of move it away from this kind of navel-gazing situation. The French were great. They kind of did the whole thing about how, you know, when you go through architecture school and people talk about like inhabiting space and creating a forum and creating this kind of area to linger for like the community. And normally you say what you're talking about because you've never actually seen it work in real life. And I thought that the French did really well in so much that when they had performances on, it was really engaging and encapsulating. I thought the British just brought the energy that you kind of imagine from the the curators, right? So really vibrant, really um, alternative, right? In so much that the last, um, not maybe not the one before, but the one, the pavilion before that was something that was really architectural with a capital A. Um, and they brought it back to the people, you know, which is great. They engaged with the theme. I thought Uruguay was really great because they seem to have a lot of fun with it, with their opera about forestry. I really liked Liam Young's film, which was about the kind of climate infrastructure and with this just like monumental film. Uh, Lionheart's kind of poem, when you enter the, was it the Arsenale? Yeah, right at the start. It was, I thought that was amazing. Arresting, right? Yeah, arresting. Um, Mabel O. Wilson... Fantastic. Also, let's talk about Brazil, right? The pavilion called Terra. I I have this kind of process that I go through, which is I walk through all of the exhibitions at a constant speed. If something doesn't stop me, I don't stop. Yeah. I don't I don't stop to read everything because you can't. And Brazil was one of the ones where I was kind of walking through it and kind of halfway through it, I was like, whoa, I think I'm missing something good here. And it's kind of crazy because you ne you never really think about the indigenous people of Brazil, right? You never really think about the land that was taken in order to establish this this country that's one of the most most important countries in in our lifetime. You know, one more thing, last thing I'll say. Okay, so it's the opening of Biennale. All of us flock towards Venice. All of us have way too much fun, drink too much wine, <laughs> eat too much food, way too many spritzes, way too many spritzes. 
And we kind of look at all these exhibitions, but we don't realize that the majority of the six months that it's on for, it's a place that's going to be inhabited by school kids that go on their school trips and stuff and people that aren't us. So I think that was one of the reasons why the things that I stated before as like my favorite ones were so good to me because with the understanding that it's, the audience is not just architects, these those are the ones that stood out for me. I think that um, the ones that you mentioned, particularly like the the French Pavilion, which was um, it was all about the kind of ballroom scene and voguing, and mm-hmm. they'd created this kind of bit what was essentially a big giant ball, uh, silver ball um, as a stage. Yeah. Um, it was just so simple as a concept, and that just made it so powerful. Um, so there is kind of certain. Um, advantage to having a simplicity to your exhibition and even the British one I think because they just stuck to I think it was six key sculptural items yeah. um, and an, an amazing quite quite emotive film with amazing soundtrack that had a certain simplicity to it that really got their message across did you get a chance to see the British Pavilion and what did you think of it I thought it was great obviously when the um, theme came out after they had submitted a pitch to the British Council, etc. And I thought that kind of permeating quote, which is, there's a reason why some of us look to colonise the moon whilst others look at it as an old friend. Don't quote me on that. But like, it's a James Baldwin. And I thought that was so kind of in tune with what I think Leslie was saying when she put out her theme, you know? And it's about kind of understanding that, yes, um, architecture has become... Uh, a mechanism for the absorption of capitalist surplus, but also it's also still about the people and and kind of bringing it back to a situation in which they are centered in in the conversation again is is a beautiful thing. And I thought that what Joe, Jaden, Manisha, and Sumitra did was they brought the conversation back to the immigrant popul- the biggest immigrant populations that kind of are represented here you know which is something that's not really very often kind of catered to in in the British discourse. In the centre of the main Arsenale exhibition hall was a landmark investigation by Alison Killing about the incarnation of a million Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang China which caught the attention of many critics. Why was it so important to have such a harrowing focus point for this year's Biennale? It's important because the instruments for their persecution is essentially architecture you know it's these camps that they're in and i heard the story about how someone um i think a few people kind of went in and there's someone that um went in and shouted fake news and ran out you know which is it's important it's an important thing and quite frankly i I think it's great that it had prime placement in the arsenale I think there was also kind of a weird uh, contradiction between that kind of exhibit in the main arsenale and the Chinese pavilion, which was very, very architecture-based, probably more so than a lot of the others. um, Had a lot of kind of architectural models on display, so that that was quite interesting. Now onto the culture section. First up, the huge and rarely seen Victorian Peckham Rye Station waiting room is currently open to the public with a free exhibition titled The Waiting Room. 
Metronome, a huge video art installation by the New York-based artist Sarah Z, is open until 17th of September and is a great opportunity to see inside the old station, which has remained closed to the public for the past 60 years. Finally, as part of this year's London Festival of Architecture, the Barbican Foyer is hosting an exhibition of drawings from the architect and illustrator Anna Gibb. On Saturday the 10th, 17th and 24th of June, between 12 and 4pm, you can sketch with Anna in the Library Gallery. To find out more, check out the Barbican website. Iwa, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on The Lundown. Where can listeners go to keep up to speed with your work? You can catch me on Instagram. My handle is E-W-A-E-F-F-I-O-M. That's E-W-A-E-F-F-I-O-M, E-W-F-U-M. Um, I've also got a Twitter, which is E-W-F-F-M, I think. And yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I think I'm really lucky to have seen you twice in a week. I know, twice in a week. <laughs> been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.